The following is brought to you by Braided Media. Hello, and welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that it inspires you, because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. All right, so welcome to another episode of the show. As always, I'm your host, Aziz Garuba. And today on the show, we've got a very awesome guest. Uh, his name is Opio Oloya, and he's an educator, researcher, and a published author. He was born and raised in Gulu in northern Uganda, and he became involved in national political activism for democratic reforms during the early 80s. As president of the Makarera University uh, Student Guild, he publicly condemned the 1980 national election as fraudulent. He was asked to surrender but chose to exile, first in Kenya and subsequently as a refugee in Canada. He completed his uh, Bachelor's of uh, Arts and Honours and, and Bachelor of Education at Queen's University in Kingston, uh, Ontario. Uh, he also has a Master's of Education from the University of Ottawa and a PhD at York University. So we should actually refer to him as Dr. Opio Oloya. Um, and his areas of interest include you know, child-inducted soldiers, conflict and war in Africa, regional, continental and global security, and, and counterterrorism and international affairs. Uh, he's current, he currently works uh, with the York Catholic District School Board, um, where he's a superintendent. Um, and he recently, uh, or, you know, a few years ago, wrote a, a book called Becoming a Child Soldier. And that was a culmination of research conducted in the war zone in northern Uganda, and, and for which he was awarded uh, his, his Ph.D., uh, in October of 2010. And, and beginning in August uh, uh, to this day, you know, I think he travels every summer uh, and has traveled every summer to Somalia as a war peace researcher, uh, working alongside the African mission, uh, African Union mission in Somalia uh, with their troops based in the country. Uh, as, as early as in April of 2013, uh, York University awarded uh, Dr. Aloya an honorary doctorate of laws uh, for his work in Africa generally and Somalia specifically. So, Really, really happy to have you on the show up uh, here. Uh, this is, you know, a fantastic, fantastic resume, and I'm looking forward to delving into this. Thank you. Thank you, Aziz. Um, thank you for welcoming me on your podcast. I'm, I'm really happy to, to be here. Excellent. Uh, and, and thank you for that warm uh, introduction. But yes, uh, just call me Opio. Opio, excellent. <laughs> yes, excellent. So, yes. so let, let's start with yeah. Let's start with you know your upbringing from the start. You know, you were born and raised in Uganda. Yeah. Uh, what was life like for you at an early age? Uh, and then you know what led to uh, the circumstances that you had to flee your home country into exile in Kenya and ultimately in Canada. 
Well, um, let, let us start with my name. My name is Opio um, in, in the Acholi tradition of northern Uganda. Now, the Acholi are part of the Luo group, and Luos can be found in southern Sudan, uh, western Ethiopia, and western Kenya as well. So, you know, for example, Opio, Obama, Ogaba, Ocheng, you know. Nice. Now, oh, yes. I do know that, you know, uh, Nigeria, we have OO as well. You know, and and but uh, in northern Uganda, Opio means that uh, you are the firstborn of a twin. All okay. right. Now, yes. So it is specifically given to twins. Uh, the O is for male, and A or A, Apio is for a girl. And then the one the the, the, the twin who follows the the firstborn is called Ochen for a boy and Achen. Boy, girl. Now, was I a twin? No. Oh, and it okay. has given me a lot of problems uh, throughout my growing up because the name was given by my grandmother uh, on my father's side. Uh, it was the name of our father. Our father was called Opio. So my great-grandfather was Opio. And so she wanted that name to continue. But this is a very specific name only given to twins. So I am the only person I know about uh, who is not a twin, but Colopio. Wow. So that right off the bat uh, gave me a lot of uh, problems in school because uh, every time I introduced myself or was introduced as Opio, as I was growing up, everybody expected to, to see either Achen or Ochen, uh, the, the, the twin that follows me. And that was never the case. So uh, for those who know the rule of naming uh, children, I, I could never convince them that I am not a twin. They just believe I'm a twin. So that I have learned to live with that. So I grew up in northern Uganda, as you pointed out. Uh, in fact, slightly west of Gulu Town, about 17 kilometers west of Gulu Town, in a small village called Paminiai. And Paminiai is really, you know, savanna land um, and 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 a lot of grass. You know, as a young child growing up in a large family, um, we were running free. You know, in the, when we were not in school, my father was a teacher and then he became a farmer. Uh, and, and he, you know, we, we had plenty of space to run when we were not going to school. Uh, of course, when we were going to school, school was about uh, seven kilometers away. So we had to get there. Uh, that meant uh, every morning getting up at around uh, 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock, getting ready. And while it is still dark, you're on your way to school. Uh, because you don't want to get there late. Uh, and then once you get to school, uh, usually uh, there are some chores that were provided by the teachers, such as uh, cleaning the compound. We did not have uh, workers who clean the compound. We were the workers. So we cleaned the compound, sweep the, the classrooms, uh, even sweep the teachers' uh, quarters and, and clean up everything. And then, uh, you know, classes would begin. So that was generally what the education was like. And um, it was a very happy childhood uh, where, you know, um, when we're not in school or walking home from school, now we were not in a hurry. We spent a lot of time climbing, you know, trees to collect wild fruits, uh, try to collect wild honey, usually get stung by bees, you know, running for dear life and so on. You know, a lot of adventure. Uh, you know, and then uh, during the weekend, looking after cows. So those were some of the chores that we, we grew up with. And so it was a very happy childhood. 
it was a collective, so to speak, that, you know, when, when you're sitting down to a meal, uh, you don't have individual plate. You don't have cutlery. You know, you eat uh, with your fingers uh, from the common dish that everybody else is digging into. So that is how I grew up uh, in this kind of uh, large uh, family, but communal upbringing, uh, very disciplined. Yes, hard work, always important. Uh, school was important because, as I said, my father was a former teacher and, it, and my mother too. Uh, both were very focused on education. Education was important. Uh, you had to make sure that your grades were very good, uh, you know, and, but that was not always the case in my case. You know, I, I always found other things that were more interesting uh, to think about. And, and, and so that, that, that got me into trouble when it was time to now prepare myself to go to high school. When I was ready to go to high school, you know, as in most of uh, uh, former British territories uh, like Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, uh, South Africa, you have to pass a national exam, primary leaving certificate, they used to call it. Yes, yes. And yes. if you did not pass this exam, well, you're not going to high school, or at least you're not going to a government-sponsored high school. You can go to a private high school, which the word private means that it is not just not as good. <laughs> you know, if somebody will put together some kind of a curriculum and, and, and it is a private school and nobody cares about it. So you wanted to go to a publicly funded high school. And for that, you needed to have good grades. Uh, so the first time I sat this uh, exam, primary leaving exam, I failed it by about two points. And, and I was quite uh, upset about that. And then the second time I, I tried it, uh, I failed again. So I, you know, my peers in my grade are moving to high school and I'm still spinning my wheel in, in, in elementary school, in primary school. And then I wanted to drop out altogether and just, you know, do whatever I needed to do, look after cows and not worry about school anymore. But of course, my mother would never hear about that and say, you know, yeah, well, you try a third time. You know, others have tried more than five times or six times. And so a third time is okay. So I tried. And the, the, the third time I got a teacher who was very focused and understood what my problem was. My problem was I rushed through things. I did not care to pay attention to things. Uh, I was always interested in the next business. So uh, he, he helped me to uh, prepare me and I did pass and I went to one of the best um, uh, secondary school in Uganda, Sir Samuel Baker School, which is in Gulu. So that, that kind of sets you where uh, my, my beginning was. That's fantastic. And, and I, love, I, I love what you mentioned about, um, you know, the teacher that helped you almost reset your mind and, and discovered the area of challenge, right? Would, would you say, I mean, given the fact that you're now in academia and in, in, in effectively academia and teaching uh, uh, within uh, the high school, secondary school uh, realm, would you say that that was a, you know, something like that was, a motivator to, to get you to where you are now in terms of your passion for Absolutely. teaching? Absolutely. In fact, um, Aziz, one of the things, teachers have instrumental role to play in the life of children. When I look back at my teacher, certainly uh, that teacher, and I still remember his name, Khaled Otika, Otika was his name. And uh, I think he, he, he did pass away. I did have opportunity to meet him, uh, uh, I think around 2007, 2008. And, and he did not recognize me at that time, but I, but I reintroduced myself to him. 
uh, teachers like him and those that I encountered later on, when I went to high school, for example, um, one of the teachers uh, that I met actually came from Nigeria. His name was Mr. Abujere. And, and he loved literature uh, and English literature, that is, and introduced me to African writers like Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart, you know, Cypran Equency, The Burning Grass, and a whole host of Nigerian writers and other African writers too, like uh, Okot Pabitek. So language uh, literature suddenly became so real to me. And that love of literature translated into um, uh, pushing on and learning more and learning to read more widely and voraciously. Uh, when I finally sat the ex- of course, you have to sit another exam to go to the higher, <laughs> this is called the senior, senior secondary school. Or yes. the, oh, yeah, the all-level exam. Yes. Well, in the all-level exam, uh, when I started, uh, you know, Mr. Bujeri said, I know you are going to end up with a, a, a first distinction in, in literature. And I did. Uh, you know, because of the, the kind of love of literature that he inculcated in me. And so if today I'm a writer and I'm able to write books and show love for reading, or even as a teacher, I got to credit people like uh, Mr. Abujere uh, at Sir Samuel Baker High School who really pushed the idea. Now, there are many other teachers along the way who kind of shaped my thinking. But all these teachers contributed to molding the person that I am today, very instrumental in my life. Brilliant. Brilliant. And, and okay. So, you know, you, secondary school now, you know, you, you found a passion around history. You found a passion around, um, you know, literature. Um, what then did you decide to, uh, uh, to do after graduating, uh, from, from high school? Uh, now you have another uh, two years in, in what they call the A level. This is pre-university. Okay. I think in Quebec, they call it Sagan. <laughs> and in Uganda, you have two years of uh, A level, and and this is senior six and senior uh, senior five and senior six, and then university. So, uh, in senior five and six, I decided to go away from my hometown. Now, I went to close to the border between Uganda and uh, Kenya, uh, the border town Tororo. That is where I did my A level at Saint Peter's. By this time, you know I am. Uh, specializing in in economics, in lit, uh, in African literature, European literature, uh, and in history, and all of the above. So that's my the the, the 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 subject that I'm focusing on. But I'm also beginning to experiment with uh, you know with with student leadership. Uh, one of the things that came now this is a time during the years of Idi Amin, uh, the dictatorship that started in 1971 and went through. To 1979, after uh, until Idi Amin was kicked out of Uganda, he was a brutal dictator. So when I was doing my A level in Tororo, this is the time of Idi Amin. There's scarcity of food. There things are really difficult, uh, and this is a government boarding school. But students are not being well fed. So we are mm. being fed on a steady diet of uh, cornmeal and and some beans that are rotten. And so, you know, I remember uh, finally talking to the students in the dining hall where we'd assemble for dinner and said, this is not acceptable. There must be better food. You know, our principal needs to bring us better food, uh, you know, because we cannot survive away from our families on bad food. Mm. 
And so, so all the kids, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they, they were all riled up. And of course, the teachers could not stop them from all these, you know, uh, riotous behavior that occurred in the dining hall. So I was summoned to the principal's office the next morning. And the principal said, well, uh, Opio, what you did last night was terrible. You know, you cannot, you caused a strike. Call it a strike. <laughs> so we are going to expel you. And so I was expelled from oh, Series wow. 6 with only about uh, two months left before the final exam that would have allowed me to go to university. And so uh, I didn't want to go home because I knew I had to explain to my dad that I was expelled. Uh, but my sister was across the border in Kenya and I crossed over and stayed with her for the two months, but I came back to do my exam. Thankfully, I passed. So I did actually end up going to Makerere University that you talked about. So this is now 79.80, when Uganda was now making a political change. Idi Amin has been kicked out in April of 1979. There is now new hope for a new Uganda where democracy is for everybody. You uh, We are able to vote. And I'm now a first-year student at Makerere University, one of the oldest um, universities in Africa. Anyway, um, as, as the story goes, that did not go according to script because uh, the, the political climate was still really not all that good. And as Makere student, we went out into the villages to educate people about their rights, their human rights and so on. And we were not always welcome. You know, uh, at least on a couple of occasions, we were badly beaten. Uh, on one particular occasion, I thought that we would be killed. And it was just by good luck that uh, we were able to escape. All we were doing, again, is just educating folks about their rights, their human rights. And, of course, that, that was not was frowned upon. Anyway, uh, in the July of 1980, I was elected, as you pointed out at the beginning, uh, the student president uh, of Makere University Student Guild or government. Now, this is... You know, there, there are many others who have, who had been president, uh, Makere uh, University Guild president before me, and they've used it as a platform to talk about whatever is happening in the country. So as, uh, the president of the student guild, you, you make commentary. You talk about things that need to change in the country, you know, uh, on behalf of students. And in my particular case, I, I spoke out about, uh, the 1980 election following the exit of Idi Amin. And I felt that we felt that it was not free and fair and that Ugandans were denied that opportunity to express their democratic rights. And for that, of course, uh, we, we, we got, we got into problems. Hmm. Uh, the military began to visit Makero University. And finally, on February 24th, 1981, uh, the Makero University student government was banned by the government of Uganda. So wow. it was announced on radio in the evening. The, the, the Makere University Guild is now banned, and we would like, uh, we, we ask that uh, the president of Makere Student Government or PO lawyer report to the nearest police station. Now, my question is, would you go there? Oh, my goodness. That, <laughs> wait, how old were you when all of this was happening? I mean, uh, this, I believe I was 23. Goodness. I was I mean, 23 years old, yeah. It, yeah. This, this sounds like a lot of stuff for a young individual, young up-and-coming student, you know, just trying to fi- figure, just trying to get through school, <laughs> you know, and yeah. all of a sudden you're thrust into e- effectively the forefront of, of political shenanigans and, and, yeah. and military regimes. 
how how were you feeling at that time well you know um incredibly because of the solidarity that we had uh not only within campus among the students um but also from outside we had many of supporters you know they in in you know in the neighbor in the neighborhood of the university Makere University is in Kampala the capital city of Uganda is on a hill but all around the hill you know there are settlements people who, are, who have lived there for many many years uh, and so th- we had tremendous support so for when 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 the announcement was made that night uh, I knew that I would be arrested in fact they sent in the military uh, on campus and many students were arrested others were beaten and in fact some were killed so so that night was a bad night february 24 1981 but i was taken to uh, a professor's house i never met this professor before but a friend of mine took me to this professor's house and he hid me in his bedroom hmm. uh, overnight and i could hear the shouting you know people calling my name and then the gunshots and what not the chaos out there the following morning this professor arranged for a car to take me out of campus and to a hiding place so i was driven out to a hiding place and then uh you know uh eventually we ended up in this convent where nuns took care of us between uh, the 25th of february 1981 until march 6 1981 and on march 6 uh transport again was organized this again by well wishers organized for us now to escape and travel to go to Kenya a uh, neighboring country that is where we were going to look for exile but it was a trip that day March 6 1981 we had to go through many military uh, roadblocks mm. uh we you know during one of them a soldier recognized me and said hey i think i know you and i'm thinking oh this is now the end of me and and he said well you know um I'm so happy to see you. We went to Gulu High School together. Now the wow. moment he said Gulu High School, I knew that he was talking about my younger brother. I never went to Gulu High School. I went to Sir Samuel Baker High School. So uh he mistook me for my brother. So I pretended to be my brother. So, oh yeah, I remember you. You know how are you doing long time? All of these things and <laughs> so he said, you know, oh, wow. have you got a cigarette? Uh, at that time I did not smoke, but we carried cigarette because we knew soldiers love cigarettes. So we gave him a cigarette and off we went. Uh and then when we got to the border to enter Kenya, uh I recall that two of us went ahead. Uh and uh and by the way, the 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 two of us, uh one of them was uh I I and I don't mind mentioning his name, Grace Galabuzi. Grace Galabuzi is uh professor at Ryerson uh un- university here in in Toronto mm-hmm. so the two of us walked ahead and and then the the other two came from behind but the first the, the two of us that went ahead to enter Kenya we were challenged by the Kenyan authorities they said your passport was not stamped by Ugandans can you go and get your passport stamped of course we knew we could not go back right so we just said okay we will go do that but instead of going back to the Ugandan side of the border we just moved in straight into Kenya and and so in effect entering Kenya illegally Legally. but 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 under the circumstances that was the best we could do <laughs> wow and uh, yeah this is a fascinating fascinating story so at, at age 23 you are effectively exiles from your own yes. country you know uh you've witnessed 
atrocities, you know, um, yeah. you know, with with regards to the Ugandan government at the time. How did you end up then, you know, going all the way from Kenya to arriving in Canada? So when we got to Kenya, which was the following day, uh, one of our very first, uh, the four of us, uh, four uh, refugees uh, coming from Makere at the time. There were many others who came after us after that, but the, the four of us at that time, our immediate problem was to find a place to stay and to eat and, and all of the above. So uh, we had a few people that we had some contacts who help us, but uh, eventually we ended up uh, going to the, you know, we began to ask, what are we going to do now? About a week or two weeks later on, we began to, somebody suggested, go to the American embassy and see if, you know, uh, actually before we even went there, our story was written uh, in, in, a, in a UK newspaper, the Guardian newspaper. And that story then from there, somebody suggested, you go to the embassies and see whether they're willing to sponsor you. So we knocked on the, at the American embassy in Nairobi, and they said, no, 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 we don't do that. We went to the uh, German, uh, you know, embassy that with the language factor was a problem. We didn't speak German. Uh, the Austrian embassy seemed to be uh, friendly, but again, it ended up nowhere. So we ended up in the Canadian High Commission. And we met this guy, a uh, tall uh, Canadian. And, uh, and, and I remember a big guy from Alberta. And, and he said, you know, uh, what, you know, why are you running away from Uganda? We explained our story. We showed him the newspaper clippings. And he said, you know what? Um, yes, you come back in a week's time. But in the meantime, you need to register with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees here in Nairobi. And so he gave us a name. He wrote it on a piece of paper. Uh, and put it in an em- envelope with Canadian High Commission embossed in gold. I still have that envelope with me to this day. Uh, and he said, take it to Mr. Dan Horn. Dan Horn was from, um, I believe it was from Sweden. And, uh, and, and, and he will register you as, as refugees. And once that occurred, then you come back. So we went to Mr. Dan Horn. He registered us. And, and then we went back to... Uh, the Canadian Eye Commission. And it was from there that we fill out the applications. And this was, uh, the application was then sent to various uh, Canadian uh, universities. Uh, Queen University picked me as, you know, to sponsor me. Uh, and and uh, uh, two of my friends, one was picked up by the University of Toronto uh, and the other one, uh, Saskatchewan University, University of Saskatchewan. So three of us came uh, Grace Galabuzi came back, came a little later. Uh, so the three of us arrived here on June 7th, 1981. That's when we arrived. And then we were separated. One went to Saskatchewan. The other one remained in Toronto. I was picked up that night of June 7th, 1981 and taken to Kingston, uh, where I would spend the next uh, three to four years. Amazing. Amazing. And so, yeah, I mean, look at that. Like you've, you've gone literally to another entire part of the world that you probably had never been to at the time. Um, arriving in Kingston, small town uh, in, in Ontario. Um, what was the Queen's experience like for you just going through that undergraduate program? Did you ever feel like, oh, you know, I feel like a charity case because I'm here on, you know, I'm a refugee in this country. I'm being sponsored. Was there, were, were there any of those types of feelings or were you just focused on, I'm going to get the education that I couldn't complete 
uh, um, back in not the day? Not at all. There was not that feeling that I was a charity, you know, uh, you know, being sponsored. And uh, certainly in terms of um, in terms of the newness, it was new. It was a new experience. But I, but everybody was welcoming. I have to say that. Um, from the the, the the professor who picked me up, uh, David McClay, he was the uh, he was a physics professor, and at the time I believe he was the dean of art and science. He picked me up uh, that night from Pearson International Airport and took me to Kingston. But everybody was welcoming. Uh, you know, everybody surrounded me with love because I did not have anybody. Uh, but I did not feel somehow like you know here I am you know I'm a refugee and <laughs> right, right. And, and a charity a, char- a charity case not at all uh, I think the friendship was genuine uh, the care was genuine and and everybody wanted me to feel welcome and that is really how I felt I felt very welcome and very fortunate and uh, my classes began the very next day uh, on 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 June the eighth. Uh, you know, began uh, a, a class in, in a geography class, summer class that was being offered by, uh, a, a, I remember, Professor Osborne, mm. uh, now retired. Uh, but he was the professor in, in uh, the faculty of, uh, in, in geography, in Department of Geography. And so he welcomed me into his class. And, uh, and, and I remember they were talking about acid rain at the time. And I, I had no idea what acid rain was. And this is like, <laughs> I'm only at 24 hours in Canada. I'm talking about acid rain, something I had no clue what it was or about clear cutting, uh, of, of, um, of forest in, uh, in, 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 in the Kahoot Sound in, in, in British Columbia. I mean, all these things were new to me. Uh, but it, it was my introduction to the Canadian experience. Phenomenal, phenomenal. And, and, you know, going through all of that, and of course, this is, I mean, how was your first experience with snow? Because I would assume you've never had this before as well. What, what was yes. that like for you? So, so I remember uh, one of the people who welcomed me. Uh, now, many people, as I said, welcomed me. But one of the first people who uh, prepared me for snow was... Um, uh, uh, a graduate student in, uh, in environmental science, uh, a Jewish student. His name was Norm Elfan. And, and Norman Elfan um, took me to, number one, prepare, you know, get me uh, for us to buy a, a thick coat. He said, you know what, things are going to get cold. Uh, and, and so Norman was like a brother to me. Uh, and we went and we bought stuff uh, from downtown Kingston, and then, uh, and then the first day of snow came and, and Norm said, Oh, Pio, snow is here. And, <laughs> and I'm seeing this white powdery stuff. And I wasn't quite sure whether it looks like flour, but then when I touch it, it melts. And, and, and it was a good heavy snow that, that, uh, that the beginning of that winter. And, uh, and so, you know, Norm and I roll around in the snow and, uh, and then we had a snow fight, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and, and so I, uh, last year I had a chance to meet, uh, Norm. Uh, he lives here in Toronto and, and, and had a good laugh about that, those early days, uh, when, when, when I was quite new in Canada experiencing snow for the first time. And he was there to, to actually see me, uh, frolic in the snow, but to also begin to realize this place can be very, very, very cool, you know? Uh, but, but, it, you know, people like Norm were there for me. Uh, making sure that I hold the proper gear, the proper mitts, and so on. Uh, you know, I had this very thick coat, 
and and with a with a hood. So I was always well protected moving from my uh, from from the house where I was on Aberdeen Street and going to my lecture lecture hall. So I was well protected against the cold. Amazing, amazing. So you know, you you finish your undergraduate studies at at Queens, um, and then you know go on to do your masters at the University of Ottawa. Um, what um, what happened after after your master's degree? You focused on education, um, and and you know, did you start teaching immediately, or did you spend some time doing other stuff before you you got into the education system? Yeah. So after graduating with my undergraduate degree in nineteen eighty three eighty three. Uh, spring of 83, it was not a very straightforward path. You know, uh, the very first question was, what was I going to do? Um, I registered in the graduate program uh, in political science, and the idea was I was going to do international relations. But somehow I really didn't, I didn't, I didn't like the program as much. And at some point in the winter uh, coming, you know, 83 coming to um, January, February of 84, I, I decided that I wasn't going to complete that program. So okay. I dropped out. Uh, and then a friend of mine who had, uh, who was finishing his medical uh, degree uh, at Queens, uh, you know, you talk about good advice, bad advice, but in this case, it came from a good place, but it was a bad advice. He had gone to Uganda and I'd met my family and he had also seen the tremendous need for needs for, for medical doctors. And he said, Oh, you know what? You're smart. You can do it. You know, you should study to become a doctor. So I took, <laughs> I took it to heart. And, and, and so the, uh, in the, in the, in, in the, in the fall of 84, I began taking, uh, organic chemistry and physics and biology. And, and I was terrible at all of those. And I flung them <laughs> very badly, uh, which, which now led me to feel very despondent. You know, I've dropped out of uh, graduate work. And, and so now coming to, um, uh, coming to uh, you know, spring of, uh, of 85, this is when uh, my friend uh, David McClay, remember the professor who picked me up, you know, found me talking to a group of kids uh, at, at Queens International Center. And he said, my goodness, you seem to really love talking to young uh, people. Have you ever thought about being a teacher? And I said, not really. Hmm. And he said, no, you should, you should really think about it because, you, you know, you're natural. You're natural at teaching. And so I applied uh, to go to Queen's um, Faculty of Education, and I was accepted. Uh, and so in September of 85, I began uh, my um, uh, one-year uh, teaching degree at Queen's. Uh, at MacArthur College, and uh, and then I graduated uh, in the spring of '86, and then went to Ottawa. There were no jobs, so I went to Ottawa and began doing my summer courses uh, in graduate work, and then on uh, began supply teaching in the Ottawa area. But but finding jobs as a teacher was extremely difficult. Uh, now I, I you know I did not want to think that I was not being um, accepted into the profession because uh, of my accent as an African, because I was black. I didn't want to think it like mm. that. I wanted to stay uh, positive and to say, you know what, when the job comes, but I do remember going, applying to all of the school boards. And I mean, every single school board in Ontario, I send my application to them. And, and I remember one particular 
uh, school board in, I believe it was in Timmins because I left Ottawa to go to do the interview and it took me about nine hours on the bus. And when I got there, I stayed in a hotel the following morning I went and, and we had spoken with the principal before I left Ottawa. But when I got there the following morning, the principal told me, oh, uh, you know, it was very welcoming, but he told me, oh, sorry, but the job has been failed. Then I'm thinking, wow. but we spoke before I left Ottawa uh, yesterday in my mind. And I traveled nine hours by bus uh, to come to Timmins. And, and here I am. And, and you're telling me that the job is failed. Of course, I, I simply said, thank you. And, and then I had to begin to prepare myself for the trip back. Oh my goodness. So, you know, so, you know, you begin to look at those instances and say, okay, how much of it is just bad luck and how much of it there, you know, there has to be some racist, um, uh, attitude in there somewhere, you know, but I did, I always wanted to be positive and not allow that feeling that, you know, perhaps I was being discriminated against to, to, to be, to be the, the dominant thinking that would lead me. So I, I just kept being upbeat and continue with my application. In the meantime, I got accepted to go teach high school in the Bahamas and ended up at eight might rock uh, on grand Bahama. Uh, that is where I was in Freeport. And, and, and uh, this is now 88 uh, during the summer of 88, but by around December of 88, I got a call from the York Catholic district school board. And they said, well, you know, we are in great need of teachers like you. You did an interview with us uh, several months ago. Uh, we really have a spot for you. Would you come and, and take the job? And oh, I wow. said, no, I'm here in the Bahamas. It's nice here. <laughs> <laughs> There's no snow. <laughs> I, I said, no. Uh, so uh, the person who called, uh, Sula Rosa, uh, you know, was her name. And Sula Rosa called again two weeks later and said, really, I want you to think about it because this is the rest of your life here we are talking about. She was very convincing. So she convinced me to come in December of 88. Uh, I came and I went straight to the board's office uh, and, and I met with Sula Rosa and she said, you know, um, yeah, you have the job. I just want to ask you a few questions. My eyebrows shot up like questions. I thought I had the job. She said, no, 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 don't worry. You have the job. And so I signed, and 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 that was the beginning of my um, my uh, work as a teacher with the York Catholic District School Board, which began in uh, in January after Christmas uh, of '89. That's when I began uh, with the York Catholic District School Board, and it was on the persistence of Sula Rosa, who became the director of education, by the way, and and who eventually again encouraged me to uh, come forward as a superintendent of school. And, 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 and she was there to, to see me hired as superintendent of school. So I have a long history of friendship with Sula Rosa, uh, who is retired now. But, but these are the people who gave me a chance to move forward. Very impressive. And you've, been, you've now been with the, the, the district school board for, you know, what, over 20-something years, over no, almost 30, 30, 30 years. 30, yeah. 32, 33 years, yeah. I think. So it's been a long... <laughs> as a teacher... Uh, of course, it was tough at the beginning because, again, the accent, you know, you were about the accent. And, and you know, there are people who think, you know, uh, you know, is he a good teacher? Mm. I think, and I started in uh, Maple, which at the time, uh, I would say was about probably 90 plus percent Italian, uh, mostly Italian kids uh, at St. David. That's where I began my teaching career, teaching uh, grade four or five. 
but the, the kids, the kids are very quick. You know, the kids, when you love kids, they will love you back mm, 10 times. That's, that, and that's I awesome. enjoyed it, the kids. So it didn't really matter to me. Uh, but the parents also came, came around. Um, you know, uh, I, I used to go and knock on doors, believe it or not, because I wanted to be different. I wanted them to know that, yeah, I'm different. Yes, you can see physically I'm different. I'm, <laughs> I'm a black teacher, but I'm also different in the way I do my thing. So, for example, kids who did not do their homework, they knew that Mr. Lawyer was going to come and knock on the door to say, last night you did not do your homework, so tonight Mr. Lawyer is coming here to make sure you do. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. So, and so the, the, the word spread out in, in Maple. Every time I would walk to, because most of the kids were within walking distance from the school. So after school, I would walk to the house where I needed to go knock on the door. And so word spread, if you see Mr. Lawyer walking, somebody did not do their homework. So you can imagine every kid <laughs> that, working hard to, that is incredible. to get their homework done. Yeah, yeah and is- the parents loved it, you know. So the issue of race did not really now factor in because, no, they, you know, they, 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 here is a teacher who love our kids, uh, who really care about their success. And so the parents were on board as well. The problem now was, you know, uh, many parents wanted their children in my class, but my class could only take so many kids. That that is a good problem to have at yeah. particularly at that point in time is is yes. yeah you know it's it's not that people don't want to be around you is we can't get enough of this guy let's yeah how yeah. can I get in his class that's that's, that's incredible it. that was that was the big issue how do we get in there and and so I've kept in touch with many of these uh, students who are now uh, grown up adults and uh, many of them have children of their own and 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 so they remind me a lot about those other days and and the work that we did together. Uh, but I, you know, I, I find that kids are, in, it doesn't matter what race kids are. They, they are incredibly quick in picking up things, uh, in being positive. Uh, as long as the, the teacher is positive and working with them and channeling their energy in the, in the right way, uh, kids will always come along. Mm. And, and, and that was my experience, really happy experience teaching um, uh, at St. David. And then moving on to another school in, in Markham. Uh, which was now mostly uh, uh, Southeast Asians and black kids. This is now uh, in the Millican Mills area where I taught primary, uh, sorry, junior intermediate. And then I became vice principal in the same school and then became a principal in the same school. So that was a different experience. That was a very different experience. And it was a different experience in the sense that, you know, they, uh, the, the when I became principal, I remember, you know, some of the uh, the black students thought, okay, now we have a black principal, maybe things, you know, going to be different in the in the sense that, they, you know, we don't have to worry about working. To, no, 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 you got to work hard. I want to see you excel. I know you can excel. Don't give me any excuse. If you are coming to school late, I will come and wake you up. and so again the knock on the door first thing at 7 a.m you know are you ready because don't come to school late i don't want to hear the excuse uh and so uh and and yes if you miss you know if you do something that was unacceptable and against the code and and required suspension yes i will suspend you and so you know i would suspend uh uh, uh, a kid and then i would go knock on the door in the evening and counsel them uh so the, the, the idea here is you are a good kid. You did something unacceptable. 
Uh, and that, so let us focus on the, the, the thing that was unacceptable, but you are not a bad kid. I don't want you to go thinking you're a bad kid because you were suspended. No, you were suspended because uh, of the mistake you made, but you as a person is not the problem here. It is the action that was the problem. So I would explain it to them uh, with their families. And again, that is how we were able to move things forward. Th- this you is know. this is really really uh, you know worth noting that you know this, your style of teaching and you know community involvement not not you know not just oh you know I'm there to to just impart the knowledge but being really vested in the lives and future of your kids um, you know is is really f- fantastic and and I think for a lot of young black students out in the diaspora right I think that's that's a gap that a lot of them feel that they're missing. That and you know, like you said, you know, you would suspend kids because they, you know, it's just consequence of action. Yeah. But that consequence of your action does not translate into, um, into, um, you know, the rest of your life being terrible, right? No, you no, made a mistake today, and, and, and we'll fix it. Yeah, absolutely, no. It, it was for me. It was very, especially for black kids, uh, who, who often had very bad experience being in school. I wanted them to know that uh, number one, they could succeed just as well as anybody else, and 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 that they must try, and that they must do their best. Uh, don't don't give me excuses, you know. I, I and I will not accept it. Uh, don't come to school late and think that that is okay. It is not okay with me. I want you to be ready. I want you to be dressed properly. I want you to put your mind ready to learn. And, and, and that was the focus. And yes, if you did something that was unacceptable, yes, uh, and it requires suspension, I will suspend you. And, and, but again, as I said, you know, they're going home to counsel the, the children. I knew that was above and beyond, but the parents appreciated that because again, it, it gives parents also context that, you know, my child is not a bad child. You know, this, this was the action was not, uh, was, was the issue here. And, and allowing them to also feel supported, number one, uh, but also then uh, support their children uh, in making sure that they made the correct uh, choice the next time. And, and for me, that was really critical, especially for black kids, because, you know, already they, 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 they feel stigmatized coming to school. They feel that they, they don't have space uh, in school. And, and and so on and so forth. And I wanted to create that environment where they felt that they, they could be free, they could learn, they could excel uh, like everybody else. And, and no, don't give me excuse. Do your very best. Give your very best work. Always uh, not have, you know, hearted work in, in whatever you're doing. I always wanted to. And so, they, you know, I would ask them, even though I was already a school principal, I would go into the classroom. And I would, I would, I want to see your work. How are you doing? You know, how are things? So, so they knew that they were being supported at all times. Um, and, and because education really, you know, and again, going back to my background in Uganda, growing up in the village, you know, it, it has become a cliche. You know, it takes a village. You know, you hear everybody say it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it takes a village to, to, to educate a child. Well, uh, actually, it does take a village <laughs> to educate a child. But it means that everybody needs to be invested in it uh, and, and, and not just, you know, do, do your little, little piece and then leave it there. No, you have to show kids are very intuitive. When kids know that you genuinely, genuinely care 
I don't care whether you're a white teacher or a black teacher. Uh, it doesn't matter to them. They know. They can read you if you love and care about their welfare. They will do, they will go even beyond to show you that, that yes, we understand you care for us. Now I'm going to give you the best work. Every teacher should do that. If you show love and care for the children who are in your, in your charge under your responsibility, uh, they, will, they, will, they will return many, many times over. And that to me is where education should be, that kids feel the care and the love and that, that, that in turn, they feel now, okay, I can take off. And, and, and so that, that was a big thing for me. Uh, was it difficult sometimes as a black uh, administrator? Of course it was difficult. There were elements of racism. Like the, the, the story here, I got to tell you this story. But, you know, uh, I remember one morning I was um, welcoming students. I always went to front of the school every morning, rain, shine, it doesn't matter. I'm at the front of the school welcoming families, welcoming the kids, you know, come in, you know, and asking how they are. You can see how a kid is when they're walking into school, whether they have had a terrible night, whether there was something wrong, uh, whether they're happy. You can just by looking at their faces, they don't even have to say a word. You can see it. So I go out at the front to welcome them. So I was welcoming kids and, 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 and I was being playful with the students. And I would say, are you sure you are ready to come to my school? Come to my school. And so I would, you know, I mean, they're coming to school. I know they're going to walk into the school. But I would still, you know, playfully say, are you ready to come? Come to my school. So a supply teacher who had never been to that school uh, that I was principal at overheard come to my school and saw a black man talking to kids, white kids, and thought, "Uh uh-oh, there must be. So she called 911 and said, you know, uh, there's an abduction in progress. So uh, four police cruisers and and came and stopped. And the first officer uh, who happened to be uh, uh, an officer of Chinese heritage. And I knew him because I taught two of his children while I was still a teacher. Look at that. (laughs) (laughs) York Regional Police. And I said, Officer Paul, what is the problem? Why are you, where are you going with all this speed? And he said, somebody called and said, there is a, (laughs) there's an abduction in progress. An abduction? What? What are you talking about? I am there. I've been here for the last 30 minutes. I didn't see anybody, any stranger here. And, and, and so then we chatted about, you know, uh, Officer Paul, Paul Chang, it was his name. And, uh, you know, he's, I think he's retired from Rock, York Regional Police now. And, and so we talked because I taught both his uh, children. And, uh, and, and so we exchanged, exchanged some pleasantries and then, and then they left. Uh, but then, the supply teacher asked one of the regular teachers, said, who is that guy uh, in, in the front? And they said, well, that is the principal. And wow. so uh, when, oh when, when I <laughs> was told why the police came and, and so on, and who had called 911, I called that uh, supply teacher. And I said, why, why did you assume that, that a black man could not be part of the school? I asked, I said, well, you know, I made a terrible mistake. I said, well, uh, your terrible mistake certainly will not be repeated in this school, so you are not welcome. Uh, you know, I, I wanted her to really think about that. Th- this is incredible. <laughs> I can, I mean, when we when we look at and you know, with an incident like that, right? 
And when we translate that to what has been happening in, in North America over the last few years and, you know, the unintended consequences of police interactions with, with black individuals, something like that could certainly have ended, you know, uh, your experience could have, could have certainly ended in the it, most tragic, negative yes, way. Of yeah, course. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. No, uh, you're right, uh, Aziz. Um, uh, but in this case, as I said, the first officer to jump out of the vehicle happened to be uh, uh, Officer Paul Chang. Uh, of York Regional Police and 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 whom I knew very well because he was a parent in my class. I had taught both of his children, you know, uh, and both of them have since gone on to do. One is a doctor, I believe, in Northern Ontario, uh, and so they 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 are doing very well for themselves. Uh, and 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 so he knew me very well, uh, and he knew me, of course, as the principal of the school. But imagine that if it had been somebody that that uh, police was not familiar with. Yes, it could it could be tragic, yeah. and and so that 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 uh, thankfully there are not there were not very many of those experiences uh, where for whatever reason somebody thought that they could yeah you know, there the occasion where somebody would come and say oh hi you know I didn't know that they that they have hired a new uh, security guard uh, you know at the at the at the to, to, you know standing in front of the school and I said well. I, I am the new security guard, and I also <laughs> double. I, I have also happened to double, double as, as the, the principal. As school principal. <laughs> Fantastic. So I make light of it like that, and uh, but no, for the for the most part, though, uh, my experience uh, in as a teacher in the York Catholic District School Board, as a school administrator, uh, and now as superintendent, have all been really, really positive. Um, I, I have felt that I've grown as a person. It has allowed me to actually be able to branch out into all the other things, including my work, um, you, you know, uh, postgraduate work, um, doing research and so on. All of it because, um, number one, first and foremost, I felt welcome here at York Catholic District School Board, you see. So that, that is, so it's, it's you know, been mostly positive. Okay. Uh, yes, the, the occasional blips here and there. Uh, never deterred me from you know being the best that I could possibly be. Let's uh, let's yeah. move on to you know let's talk about your experience um, in the later half of your career uh, when you started working with with child soldiers and and doing research around around that. Um, you know, and ultimately publishing, you know, a couple of books around this, uh, particularly, you know, with regards to child soldiers in, in, in Uganda, and then also your work with, with the African mission in, in Somalia. Um, how did you, how did you come up or how did you come upon, you know, getting into this space uh, for research and, and what was driving that passion? Was it, you know, looking back to, you know, your home country that you fled and, you know, trying to uh, reconnect on certain aspects of it. What was the genesis of this um, experience? So, so here is where the story really begins. Um, it, I I had been away from home since 1981. Uh, I went briefly to Uganda uh, back. At, you know, I was able to go back in 1988. Just before I went to the Bahamas, I did go to Uganda uh, during the summer, July of 1988. And at that time, I could not go to my hometown in Gulu because there was a new war that had begun. And that war appeared to involve children, young children. So 
fast forward to 1996, I went back home again. This time, I was determined to try to get all the way to Gulu. So I, uh, I you know, rented a car and, and I got a driver and I was driven to Gulu. The first night I was there, this is July of 1996 now, uh, the first night I was there, uh, the rebel group, the, the Lord's Resistance, I mean, LRA, uh, struck town for the first time. And they had never attacked the center of Gulu town, but they did this time. And so all through the night, there was this, and I thought to myself, okay, so you came home to die. <laughs> That's, I'm talking to myself. Yeah. And meanwhile, I'm hiding under the bed, uh, you know, in the hotel room. I'm right underneath the bed uh, itself and, and just talking to myself, like, like, what a way to die, you know, like, why did you, why did you even do this? You know, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, the following morning, um, in the aftermath, uh, you know, I began talking to some of the soldiers and they said, yes, they struck last night. In fact, they burned a village not far from here. They took me and I found that, you know, some people had been burnt in their own homes. And this was quite tragic. Now, I, you know, so there was a war and that war was involving little children as young as eight years old. And, 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 and in all of my life, growing up in Gulu Town and in Paminyai, children were just children. You know, we grew up as children. I told you my, my childhood was, was very happy. The most that anything ever happened was that, you know, you, you, you run around, you get stung by bees and you fell, fall out of a tree because you're looking for wild fruits and whatnot. Uh, the savanna was really our space, and we just, you know, ran around freely. But now the savanna had become the place that ate these child soldiers, and that was a new experience. So in 2000, uh, I got a call from a Canadian filmmaker. Her name is Krista Schott. So Krista says to me, we know there are child soldiers in northern Uganda, in your hometown. I've never been to Uganda could you please come uh, with me to Northern Uganda so I can document, create a documentary uh, for Canadian television around child soldiers. So I asked my school boy whether I could be given two weeks to accompany the filmmaker to Northern Uganda. This is March of 2000. And so we went and we found some of these child soldiers who had escaped from the, the bush, from the forest, and had come and were being cared for by different organizations, including World Vision Canada was there, uh, taking care of these children and other organizations. And, uh, and so we talked to them. And, 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 and the more we talked to them, the more it became a mystery for me. I thought to myself, like, how do you take a nine-year-old child who has never fired a gun who has never killed anybody or let alone killed anything to now turn them into a soldier who is so ruthless, who will kill without even thinking about it and go and sleep soundly and then repeat the same thing again tomorrow morning. And that was a mystery. And, and so I began to read around after that event, we came back and, and, and uh, Chris Shad made a, a, a documentary uh, soldier Boys, it, it was called, and it aired on a number of uh, uh, TV stations, including CTV, I think, uh, aired it as well. 
Anyway, um, but in my mind, this mystery remained. And the more I read about Charles Solvius, the more I realized all of the books that I was coming across really were more sensationalist. sensationalist. Uh, they talked about the killing, but they did not explain to me how they are able to do that. Like, how do they become that? Mm. And, and so that was the impetus uh, for beginning to think about, you know, the only way you're going to find out is you go back to school. You go and learn and, and find out for yourself. So I, uh, in, this, uh, in, this pre, in, the, in the fall of uh, 2003, I applied to go back to York to do my PhD. And I was accepted. And then I began the following year, uh, 2004. And, 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 and then slowly that research around Charles Soldier began to evolve. And I traveled many times back to northern Uganda. But the advantage I had was that many of these children spoke the Luo language. And I still speak the Luo language today. Uh, if I go to the village and I am with the villagers, uh, you would not know that I, I have another language that I speak. You would just think that that's the only language I know. And so I was able to do my research in the Luo language and then translate it into English. And in, it, it was in the process of talking and doing research that I began to come and I came up with the theory of the transformation of child, child children into soldier. And that is the impetus of my book, Child to Soldier, that there is a process. And one of the very first things that those people did when they capture children is, number one, walk them until they're tired. So, they, you know, it, it, and it sounds very, you know, pedestrian, but they would walk them for many kilometers that very night when children were abducted from their homes. And they were ab- usually abducted at night. So children become disoriented. They are walked for many kilometers. They are tired. And then within a, a couple of days, they're immediately made to kill somebody. So usually they will pick a child in the group that will be designated as the child that is going to be killed. And that child will be killed. And the others will all participate in it. Now, you have to understand the African culture uh, where killing is really, 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 really taboo. It's forbidden. Mm, yeah. In almost every African culture, you know, people think, oh, people are killed a lot in Africa. In, in fact, it's the opposite. In many African cultures, if not all African cultures, killing is not the thing that you do. And, and when you kill, you know, uh, that in itself is look at in, in a certain way. You know, now you've killed a person and the evil spirit and all of these things, you know, that people think will now be upon you because you kill a person. Right. And so there's a taboo around killing. And so for children who are forced to kill, now they are carrying this big guilt and burden in their head. They now think to themselves, I can't go back to my village because I'm now a killer. I will never be accepted. So now they cannot, they they are forced to stay with the abductors. And and it goes on. There are many other steps that are involved. But at the end of it, this child is now, uh, you know, over time, uh, trained to be uh, uh, to to fight with a gun uh, and and yes to kill um, and and all of that to loot and that was how you know it was a process but it was a process of changing the mind of the child and begin to look at killing as if it was okay you know even though killing is not okay hmm. you see hmm. so it was a process and so that is what my book Child to Soldier 
which was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2013, tries to explain. So that 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 was a, a, a big part of it. Once I completed that in uh, in in June of 2010, when I defended my PhD, um, and and it, it was a good defense. Uh, uh, my professors were very happy with it. They recommended it uh, for an award, and and they said, you know, this really does fill the gap in the knowledge of how children are transformed in a child soldiers. Okay, so so that that so I finished that in June. I thought to myself, now let me go home uh, to Uganda and celebrate with my family, you know, my getting the PhD. When I got home uh, in August of 2010, I went with my family. Uh, while I was in Kampala, uh, I came across uh, uh, an army commander of the Uganda People's Defense Forces. Now, I had been writing since 1996. Remember the, the time when I went home? Yeah. That experience when I almost felt that I was going to die, I wrote about that experience and I became, you know, I, I, that, that experience was printed in the Ugandan national newspaper, which is read in Uganda and the neighboring countries. So the editor asked me to become a columnist. So from 1996, I had been writing as a columnist. So now we had almost, almost, you know, 15, 20 years later, in 2010, I had written a column about African mission to Somalia, which was in February of 2007. And, 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 and when that mission was announced, I wrote a column criticizing African leaders, criticizing African forces, and I'd written that they were going to fail because I did not feel that they had the same capacity and, and capabilities as the other forces from the U.S., from Europe, from Canada, all of those had failed. So why did we think Africans could succeed? The, the, the soldiers did not forget that article. They remembered it. So in August of 2010, I ran, I ran across this general, and he's, he, he, you know, in a restaurant, and he said, oh, do you remember you said we were going to be dead on arrival in Somalia <laughs> uh, because you did not feel that we had the, cap the cap capability? And I said, yes, I remember the article. It was very critical of, of, the, uh, of the mission to Somalia. And he said, well, I want to show you something. And he asked his aide de camp to go and get his computer, his laptop. And he brought his laptop and he began to show me what the African mission in Somalia was doing, which was not really shooting guns. Hmm. Uh, they were more involved in providing medical care, providing water, and the soldiers were slowly beginning to change the hearts and minds of Somali people and, and seemed to be really integrated into the Somali society itself, as opposed to what America did in 1993 with Black Hawks Down. Right. And with Black Hawks Down, the Americans were there, the Canadians were there. Uh, we never really cared about what was happening in, in Somalia itself. We, the, our forces were just there to do whatever they were going to do. And they were an outside force. But in this case, the African forces were really working hard to win the Somalis themselves. So when the general showed me this, he said, you know, you should, you should come and, and that way you can write about what is really happening. And, and I said, okay, so I, I love to come. And he said, so, uh, you know, when would you like to come? I said, oh, anytime. He said, okay, why don't we go tomorrow? I said, what, tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes. I said, my, my family is here. 
Uh, we are here for a holiday. He said, no, we can go. You don't need to tell your wife. You can call her when we uh, arrive in, uh, in Mogadishu. Mogadishu was, the, was very dangerous at the time. Anyway, I agreed. Uh, and the following morning, we fly out. Uh, you know, and I did not tell my wife. And in fact, until we landed in Mogadishu, then I called her and said, guess where I am? And he said, where are you? She thought I was back in Gulu town. Uh, my hometown. I said, no, I'm here in Mogadishu. She said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like you've crossed you borders in Somalia? into another war-torn country. <laughs> yeah. That's... So uh, so that, I, I, I visited soldiers. I saw what they were doing. I was truly impressed. And I wrote an article. And I said, you know, I was wrong. And I, you know, I said, I was completely off when I criticized that mission. Uh, and to see what was happening, and so it, that became, began a journey. Uh, the soldiers accepted me. They said, come back next year. So the following year, 2011, I went back, and now they had expanded their areas of control. And so I would visit the, the, the war front. In fact, as I arrived in Mogadishu in 2011, they had just captured Bakara Market, which was the scene of Black Hawks Down. So I was able to walk Bakara Market. And then uh, Mogadishu Stadium, which was another point of uh, uh, of combat in in the in the in the 1993 Black Hawks Down, and I, you know, and and but that was still a very active uh, uh, active scene of uh, shooting was still going on, and I recall um, at one point, you know, I I pulled myself up and and one of the generals stepped in front of me so quickly, and I thought, why did he do that? He said, "You're going to be picked off by a sniper." So I said, oh, you wow. are standing in front of me to take the bullet. He said, I don't want you to be killed here. Wow. <laughs> oh, my and, God. And what? so <laughs> it, that began a relationship that then uh, it turned into research, uh, working with the soldiers. And, and then uh, I wrote Black Hawks Rising. Black mm. Hawks Rising played off on Black Hawks Down. But Black Hawks... Uh, I use the title because in the African tradition, many African cultures, the hawk, the bird, mm-hmm. is seen as a symbol of protection. Even in, in ancient Egypt uh, and in some of the South African cultures, even in Nigeria, the hawk is seen as a symbol of protection of people. Mm. And so the black hawks, the African themselves, rising now to protect and to work with the people of Somalia. So that became the title of the book, Black Hawks Rising, the story of Amisom's successful war against Somali insurgents. And so uh, that book was published uh, in 2016. And, 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 and so completely reorienting where I was at, but it started as a criticism uh, of the mission and ended up as a positive thing. And, and to this day, uh, including last year, before our borders were all shut down because of COVID, I had an uh, occasion to very quickly visited the soldiers in March of 2020 uh, for about five days. I was able to go and uh, uh, visit them at the various places where they are stationed and to, to, to talk to them and see where things are at. And, and, of course, they're very happy when they see me because, you know, we have become like family, so to speak. Right. Um, they, they are happy to see me. I'm happy to see them. I want to know that what they're doing and how they're doing it. Uh, and that relationship has blossomed. And, and, and been very beneficial. So that, that is how I got uh, <laughs> from, from an educator to now a researcher to a peacekeeper 
<laughs> a fascinating, <laughs> a very fascinating journey and trajectory, and and I think you you know it as a result of some of this work that you've been that you were able to do on on the African continent with with child soldiers and and the peacekeeping, you were actually uh, given an award uh, by the Ugandan president, which is quite uh, quite a turnaround considering yes, where you the, started yeah, yeah, your, yes, your absolutely. life. Absolutely, yeah. The the Heroes Medal was given in uh, 20, 20, 20, uh, I believe it was twenty sixteen. Um, and and uh, it was the occasion also to launch the book uh, Black Hawks Rising. And so uh, President Yoweri Museveni, President Yoweri Museveni, invited me um, to to to, uh, to to this ceremony where you know it honors uh, many Ugandans. But he wanted to honor me, and and so he allowed me to talk about the book and about the experience. But, but what I want to really be able to say, and I did say it, and then, of course, the president uh, translated into the local languages for those who did not speak in English, um, uh, was that, you know, we, we, we needed to stop thinking that somehow uh, Europe or America or Canada uh, are, the, uh, are the, you know, the, these are the, the knights in, in shining armor who are going to come and solve African problems. Right. Certainly, we would not be talking about Somalia as a functional state today, which it is. Yes, there's still a, there's still a number of problems. There, even bombs still go off occasionally. But to Somalia that I know today is different from the Somalia that I found in 2010. Uh, now we have a government in Somalia. We, we, have, uh, we have legislators in Somalia. We have uh, the even old elections in Somalia. You know, when I went in 2010, uh, the the president at the time was Sheikh Sharif. Uh, he was the president, and, and then um, then after that, the, a new president came in, and now we are into uh, a third uh, president. And so the, the, the things have changed, but this came about because the African themselves came together and said, "We can do it. We we can do this thing." And of course, skeptics like me at the, at, at at first. They thought, you know, thought, oh, no, <laughs> here we go again. Yeah, you know, yeah. this is just going to be another disaster waiting to happen. Well, it was not. And, and so I learned from that. And, and so, you know, when, when, and when President Museveni honored me on that day, I, I needed to be able to say that. And, and of course, uh, the president took the time to now translate it into the, into the local languages so that people who are listening on radio and TV uh, who did not speak English. Uh, almost everybody in Uganda speaks English, but you know he, he wanted to put it in the in the local language uh, as well. So so he did that, and it, but it was a, a, a tremendous occasion. Then I met him the following day at uh, State House, where he wanted me to come and, and have uh, dinner at State House with him. So it was a good occasion, and and it, it was good, you know I felt I felt really honored. But but more importantly. I felt that I needed to be able to say to people, I was wrong. I was wrong in 2007 when I wrote that critique that they were going to be dead on arrival. Right. Uh, I needed to be able to say that. And that's, that one, that's one guiding philosophy that I, I always feel that, you know, we should never be afraid to say, I made a mistake. I was wrong. And to say it publicly, especially for something like in my case, where I had gone out <laughs> on a limb and said, you know, they're going to be dead on arrival. True. Well, <laughs> I needed to correct that. And so I, I, did, I did correct it publicly as well. And, and uh, so, yes, uh, so that was a great occasion. Phenomenal. And, and, and Apio, this, this has just been a, 
an incredible story um, of, you know, significant challenge, right, with regards to, you know, having to leave your, you know, all that you knew, venture into a foreign land and make a life for yourself while at the same time, you know, giving back and inspiring uh, those that you've educated as as a teacher, as a principal, um, uh, as a vice principal, and and also with with your research as well. So I guess I guess as we as we wrap up, uh, you know, the final question I'll ask you mm. is, you know, what do you see next in in your life? What what's next for you at this point? Well, um, Aziz, thank you for that. Now, you know, I've been incredibly lucky, and I feel uh, loved as well. And I say this because, remember, I came to this country as a refugee. I didn't have any relatives here. My family was not here. But a lot of folks have made, uh, made, it, made it their point to, 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 to support me, to encourage me, to, um, to make sure that, you know, I, I, could, I could move on to the next thing. And so that sense of giving back, certainly, you know, uh, with my research, I, I feel I've, I've started doing that. But I, I feel I could still do more. Um, uh, recently, you know, last year I, I became a, a member of council at Queen's University. Uh, and, uh, and then I was elected to executive council and then of course to the board of trustee. Uh, that, that is one part of it. But back home in Africa, I, I continue to work with various groups. Um, essentially around the issue of democracy. That is still something work in progress. Uh, through my writing, I continue to write. Uh, I am working on my autobiography. <laughs> I, I actually finished it about two years ago, then I put it away for a while. Nice. Uh, and I call it Postscript Canada, meaning Postscript in the sense that uh, my life started somewhere else, came to Canada, and in the Postscript, being in Canada, uh, that that is you know uh, what has happened since then. So I'm putting that together. So that 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 has kept me very busy. I want to be able to uh, to do more writing. Uh, it sounds like uh, you know I'm already doing a lot of writing as it is anyway. Mm-hmm. But the kind of writing I'm looking at probably more. I want to try my hands in 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 writing novels uh, to give back really to uh, people like Chinua Achebe who came before me. I I could never come to that level. Uh, as a writer of a novel, but 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 I want to aspire to write a novel, and because I feel that that is a field that I uh, can can use to explore different ideas uh, about culture, <clears throat> about progress, about difficulties, and about society, about race, all of the above, um, and and so it's something that I am fascinated about. So I want to try my hand at that. Uh, and see, you know, how that will have started. Uh, one that I can't, can't talk about it right now, but hopefully, sure. if you talk to me in a year's time, maybe I will. <laughs> I will already have, uh, you know, something I can talk about. But so there are many ideas. I want to be able to probably take time to uh, explore the possibility of teaching at the university of, uh, university level. Uh, you know, with my background in research, yeah. I think that, um, uh, I, 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 you know, I would find it incredibly rewarding to, to, to work with young people, uh, you know, entering uh, university uh, or even at a graduate level uh, who are thinking about projects and their, and their research and so on. So that is an area that I, I like to uh, spend a little bit more time uh, and explore whether that, that is possible. 
So those are some of the areas that I'm beginning to think about right now. So there are many good ideas out there that I'm, I'm, I'm exploring. Uh, but, uh, you know, most of all, you know, I remain focused in, uh, in, in social justice. I think that that is an area you could never have enough of that. Uh, there's always need to mentor young people, uh, to get them involved, uh, to talk about all these issues in society, whether it is uh, anti-Black racism, whether it is uh, about food shortages, whether it is about climate change. These are all areas that our young people uh, need to be invited. They need to feel that they can speak with a stronger voice. And, and if I can mentor one or two, uh, that, 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 that to me is, is, is a job uh, that, that, that I should try to do. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you very much you know, for, for chatting with us today and just telling, telling this phenomenal story. Uh, but before we let you go, um, we, as always, will get into our rapid fire session. I've got five questions uh, that I'm going to ask you. Uh, yeah. And you know, you've got, um, you know, just give me your responses as quickly as possible. Yes. Uh, so the first one is, you know, what book are you currently reading right now? Um, right now, I am not reading any specific book. Uh, I actually, believe it or not, I've, I've been going back to read my own book, Childhood <laughs> Soldier, because <laughs> I wanted to see how did I, so I've been reading it actually. I've been going over it again. Uh, and, and, and I wrote it many years ago. So I'm really, rereading it, so to speak. Perfect. Uh, and, and so that is what I'm doing right now. Okay. This, this moment. Yeah. And what would you say is, um, your favorite productivity tool uh, for getting things done? Um, favorite productivity tool um, is probably routine, you know, and, yeah. and, and that sounds counterintuitive, but you have to have a routine. So get up early, uh, sit yourself down and, and get to work. The only way to get work done is to get to work yeah. and, and to start it. And so the journey of a thousand miles, and I love this, uh, I believe it is a Chinese saying, the journey of a thousand miles begin with one step. you got to get started. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, what would you say is your favorite place to escape to? My favorite place to escape to usually uh, is uh, on the trail. Uh, I, one, of, one place that I love and, and still love to this day is Algonquin Park. Uh, in, in, you know, north of Toronto, uh, along Highway 60. And, and, and once I'm in the park and I camp, I usually go for about a, a, a five day trip and can, you know, hiking from one camp, uh, site to another and being able to get completely lost. The telephone doesn't, cell phone doesn't work there. The only sound you hear are the birds and the loons and, and then of course the aeroplane passing, you know, uh, five, 10 kilometers up in the sky. And that's about it. Uh, I, I just love the peace and quiet. And it's a time when I can feel that I, you know, I can connect with nature and reflect. Amazing. Amazing. And who would you say is your biggest cheerleader or supporter? <laughs> I think, I think my wife and my children, are my biggest, <laughs> you know, um, she, 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 she will shoot down an idea very quickly. <laughs> but he will also be the first to say, well, uh, you know, why don't you try that? Now, there will be days, you know, that I would be lazy and, 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 and say, I, I, you know, when are you going to get up and, 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 and do this and try this? So she is my biggest uh, cheerleader and my two boys, Ogaba and Ocheng. 
uh, they always want to find out like what are you doing what are you working on that uh, and and so they they are my biggest cheerleader fantastic and final question if money or resources were not an issue what would you do if money and resources were not an issue i think i would spend a lot of my time back in africa uh really getting to know other cultures uh i'm so interested in the cultures of other countries uh, you know uh, of other uh, other cultures in africa and, and and around the world but especially in africa for example you know i i i told you that i i i was brought into the you know the storytelling of nigeria the yeah. igbo uh by um by by chinua achebe when i che- when i read things fall apart for the first time i could have i could tell you the exact spot where things happened relating it to my own village so i would like to be able to visit and 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 to 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 to, to know uh, the many cultures the many many beautiful cultures of nigeria there are beautiful cultures in south africa there are beautiful cultures everywhere uh culture to me uh is so fascinating i you know to be able to learn a new language i'm learning lingala mm. lingala is a language that is spoken in the democratic republic of congo i listen to their music every day and and over time with the help of online dictionary i'm now able to have a conversational um a, a conversation in lingala uh and 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 speak the language so that if the if money was not an object I would love to visit just about every part of the world just to be able to submerge myself into cultures mm. and learn more about people. That really fascinates me. Fantastic. And and those that that's a very very laudable and very exciting exciting uh um goal and aspiration to have. Well, uh, Opio, thank you very much, you know, for for telling your story, for sharing your experience. I think it it's a wonderful wonderful tale, you know, there's history in there, there's determination there are life lessons that i think we can all adopt and you know as we say on the show like you you are an individual that is literally made to lead and you've been doing that in some awesome areas through teaching through peacekeeping um and you know we'll continue to support your progress in everything that you do and you know we appreciate the time that you've spent with us today thank you so much Aziz thank you for welcoming me on your program on your podcast i deeply appreciate it thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Made to Lead. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share with others. Also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show and by visiting our website madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website madetolead.co/getfeatured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead. Oh, 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 oh,